I'm Jake Watson, and this is the Saints Unscripted podcast, where we have conversations about faith crisis, topics that may be triggering about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Gospel, church history, prophets, the Book of Mormon and the Bible, and so many other things. This is Season 1, Faith Crisis. I think there's a fear that Latter-day Saints have about polygamy that we can address besides the issue of maybe it was a cover-up or Joseph was libido-driven. I, I think understanding those two are very helpful. There's a third thing, though, that, that the Latter-day Saints uh, are, are concerned about, and I just want to talk about it. It's about future polygamy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Saints Inscripted podcast. Today, we're going to have a really awesome guest, and we're going to talk about a really interesting and popular topic, and that's polygamy, uh, Joseph Smith and his polygamy and, and the church practice of polygamy. And we have Brian Hales to talk about it. Thanks for coming on, Brian. It's my pleasure. Yeah, we're so we're so happy Brian took the time today to to come on the podcast and we're just going to kind of dive right in. Brian is kind of the leading scholar on polygamy, I'd say, and he's written several volumes, four volumes, three uh, big volumes, and then Joseph Smith toward a better understanding with his wife, Laura, and definitely recommend reading those if you want to dive into polygamy, and they're really awesome reads. And we're just going to kind of go in, and he also runs josephsmithspolygamy.org, right? Correct. And uh, he runs that with his wife, and you can find out all all things about Brian. They got a bio on there, and you can learn more about him there and polygamy in general. And so we're just going to kind of go in. Right now, Brian, I'm uh, going through this faith crisis or faith struggle, uh, and it's it's not so much that I, I feel like it's kind of evolved, not so much where I have problems with things that I've come across. Like I've, I've gone on the internet and I've come across these troubling documents that I feel like the church has been hiding or that the church has deceived us on. It's not so much that anymore. I, I feel like for sure when I came across some things throughout my adulthood that definitely those feelings were sort of like that. But I I don't think that's what where I'm at right now. It's more just why why does it seem when you know that God is the same forever, you know, today, yesterday, and 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 forever, why why does it seem like the prophets change so much or why policy changes so much, doctrine changes so much, you don't know what the difference between doctrine and policy is, and it seems like sometimes the the leaders of the church preach policy as doctrine or doctrine as policy or doctrine as mind and will of God. But then you find out a few years later, it's changed. And it's like, oh, wait, never mind. That's actually not real or that's not doctrine or we're changing this policy. And it it, it came into this weird, I want to say weird situation in my head where is Russell M. Nelson going to come up in general conference and say, oh, Oops, never mind. You know what I said last conference, it's not true and and say that I or other people have listened to the last general conference and they went really steadfast and firm and okay, we're going to follow this council and then feel like, oh, that last 6 months was almost kind of a waste. I don't know if that's exactly what a situation could be, but I I feel like I'm really hesitant to believe anything the prophets say anymore 
And maybe that's good because I can find my own revelation sort of. But then again, I'm like, well, aren't prophets supposed to be that spokesperson for God? So anyway, crazy introduction to where what's kind of going on in my brain. And hopefully that helps our audience understand kind of where I'm at because I'm trying to be as transparent as possible. Um, but Brian, we're, we're talking about polygamy today and you've talked about it a million times on a million different podcasts and shows. And I definitely recommend we'll link a lot of what Brian has said about it already on podcasts and other shows and documents and websites, but we're really happy to have you on and have another time where you can come and talk about polygamy because you know so much about it and you're such an awesome person. And so anyway, what can, how can we put, start, how can we start talking about polygamy and where, where can this discussion go as far as how can it help maybe someone like me or someone that struggles out there that really has a hard time with polygamy? Um, you know, before we, we hit into polygamy, let me just respond briefly to your earlier comment about how things, policies, and practices in the church sometimes seem to change from generation to generation or even uh, shorter than that. If we look at the purpose of the gospel, and there's a couple of scriptures, and I, I won't look them up and quote them, but in section 132, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, it talks about how the gate is wide for those that aren't going to be entering into salvation or exaltation. And the, the gate is, is narrow, and the, the way is narrow for those that will. And then the Lord adds this. He says, because they choose not me in the world. Um, or, or I'm paraphrasing, but the point is that the gospel is here to help us choose God while we're in mortality. And of course, we're responding to the enticings of the Holy Spirit as we do this. And then another scripture in the book of Moses talks about how he, God is hoping that we will choose him while we are in the And so, so the, the core issue for us is to be able to choose God in our daily walk and our daily decisions and our where our hearts are. And these other things, these historical realities and things that are created by men and women who are imperfect um, and may not always be totally founded on 100% truth from God, these are really secondary issues because the primary focus is just to help us to choose God. And if we get lost in things like race and priesthood or polygamy, um, we certainly should understand and question, you know, so we understand. But we shouldn't allow whatever we our opinions are of these things to uh, change our decision to follow God and, and then move to a second tier, all of these kinds of questions. So anyway, I just, I just would offer that because whether uh, Brigham Young was a racist or whether he was following Revelation really doesn't matter to my choice to uh, follow God. And I, I don't think he was a racist, though I don't be, do believe he partook of, of some of the general prejudice of, of the day, but I'm not an expert on that. But it, I use that as an easy example. Now, when it comes to polygamy, I think uh, a little, little history of how the church has interacted with polygamy might be helpful. And this is new material. This is things that we've chatted before and, and things that I've thought of. But of course, we all know that in the early uh, 1840s, Joseph Smith secretly introduced polygamy, and then it was announced in 1852 and openly practiced and advocated by leaders until 1890, when it was no longer taught as a commandment or an expectation, 
from 1890 to 1904, there were some secret marriages, maybe a dozen or so a year on average, not a lot. But then in 1904, something very important happened. President Joseph F. Smith, who, who we believe held the authority, um, said, we're not going to do this anymore. And then for a time, there were people in and out of the church who thought polygamy needed to be uh, continued, but they ran into a big problem. Section 132 tells us that there is one man who holds the keys of this authority, and it tells us very plainly that anyone who is in a plural marriage, but without that one man's authority, that marriage is not valid, neither of force, when they are out of the world, because they are not joined by me, saith the Lord. It's verse 18. So, so the authority is very needed if we want to do uh, an eternal marriage or an eternal plural marriage. And so for over a decade, clear into the 1920s, we find that there are people claiming authority through this line or through this idea, or most often they just get a burning bosom and say, oh, I can do this. And then they go off with their plurality, ignoring most of the first part of section 132, which states very clearly that God's house is a house of order. But in the 1920s, a guy named Lauren Woolley came forth with a story about some authority he said he received in 1886. And I've written extensively on this, and I, I believe he was a storyteller. But what that did is it, it, it was a rallying point for all of these polygamists that were outside of the church by this time and still wanted to practice polygamy. And at this time, they're gaining some momentum with the press, and their numbers are growing, they're coalescing, they're not just a ragtag bunch of scattered individuals now. They've, they've created an organization with several hundred individuals. At the same time, church leadership is, is trying to suppress this. This, is, this makes us look bad. They're, they're dissenters. They're not authorized. And um, by the 1930s, there are raids by the government that the church is supporting, um, but the whole issue of polygamy becomes uh, an embarrassment, and, and it's always controversial. Uh, no matter what, what forum we want to talk about it in, polygamy will always be controversial. So what the church does in the 1930s and 40s is they try to create some distance from this controversial part of our past. I mean, the evidence, uh, there are some people writing about it. Joseph Fielding Smith wrote a little booklet on it. John A. Woodso of the Quorum of the Twelve wrote uh, quite a bit on what had happened and all. But, but generally, you weren't hearing about plural marriage in general conference. It wasn't in the curriculum. And part of this was to try to separate the church from this, this controversial practice and also to separate them from these controversial fundamentalist polygamists who continued to, to practice. And, of course, we see this today with with the, um, the FLDS and Warren Jeffs and things that it so often they conflate our church with the FLDS church and things like this. So this is, so the church's response was to just not talk about it. And we have silence on this topic and, and no one is told to, to research it or teach it within uh, the confines of the church. And this goes on through the 70s, 80s, 90s. And then in the 2000s, the internet shows up. The internet gives a pulpit to the enemies of the church or critics or just neutral people who are looking objectively at the history, but they're starting to tell us things like Joseph Smith was a polygamist, which is something that my generation never heard and the generation after me had never heard. And so when people encounter this, they, they go and they look and they find out that, oh my goodness, the evidence is really strong. Joseph was sealed to quite a number of women. And there were, by my count, 115 polygamists in Nauvoo uh, that were authorized prior to Joseph's death. 
And the biggest concern that we have is, holy cow, this is a cover-up. The church is trying to cover up this, this, the, these marriages of Joseph Smith. And I get that. I mean, I, I don't blame people for feeling that way. But the reason I've given you this kind of long uh, history is to, to realize that it isn't a cover-up. Back in the 1930s and 40s, the church wanted to create distance from them and this controversial practice, which was never going to help the, the mission of the church. And there was no authority to practice it outside. And so they just left it for silence, um, clear until the Internet age. And then uh, we're finding out that, yeah, he was a polygamist. And the church plays catch up for a few years. And now we have the book Saints, where it's all out there. All the controversies are there. And before Saints came out, the the series, um, we had the Gospel Topic essay in 2013 that explained it all. Uh, really, all the controversies are touched on in that. Uh, but the point is that this wasn't a cover-up. We we shouldn't feel, even though it's easy to understand why somebody would, that the church had covered up something that was really controversial. Um, this 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 was a total ban on, on polygamy discussion, not just Joseph Smith's polygamy. And like I say, jo- John A. Woodso acknowledged it. Joseph Fielding Smith did in their publications. But beyond that, there really wasn't a lot of talk by official voices on that. So don't feel like anything was covered up. It was just the way history unfolded. And, and yet, if you feel like it was a, a cover up, then you would you would respond naturally. But with further information, hopefully that concern can be assuaged. So thank you for saying that. I love hearing that because I've heard something like that before, but you have totally expanded on that. I think that's so important for me to understand that it wasn't a cover-up, because I feel like that's where my hurt feelings come with the church, is why would they cover this up when it's such an important issue? <laughs> um, and One so, thing we find with the leaders is that they're not real uh, anxious to change a tradition that their previous leaders had invoked or established. So when uh, Heber J. Grant uh, said, look, let's let's create distance on this issue of polygamy, subsequent church leaders really weren't that anxious to to change that tradition, but it could be changed, and it has been changed. I think the church is far more open. I mean, all the documents are available. There, There's nothing that's hidden. When I did my research in 2007 to 2012, everything was open to me at that point. In fact, some of the, the historians were grateful for somebody kind of outside of the system who was given access to all of this stuff and trying to make some sense of it and create a story that would help inform every one of what had actually happened. Um, Jake, there's a second point I'd like to talk about, and we we mentioned this earlier, but a second concern that Latter-day Saints have naturally is, is has to do with Joseph's motives. Yeah. We live in a yeah. time, it's, it's a sexuality-saturated society. There are stories of David Koresh and, and uh, oh, other leaders who, uh, they're charismatic men, and uh, is it Bob Jones, Jim Jones down in Guyana? And, and, and these guys start off with a religious uh, mantle among their followers, but, but before too long, they're, they're having sexual relations with the women as polygamous wives or just because they want to. And so it, it's easy for us to attribute that kind of motivation to Joseph. It's the natural thing to do. If I were to stand on a street corner in Cincinnati and ask 100 people the question, you know, the Mormons introduced polygamy. Why do you think Joseph Smith did it? They would all say, well, he he wanted more sexual relations. I mean, they would all say that. 
And so we don't get upset when somebody attributes that motivation naturally to Joseph. And as Latter-day Saints, we're going to do the same thing. So what we need to do is understand the practice well enough to realize that that is an inadequate, uh, and I could say completely contradicted historically, um, assessment of what actually happened. If, if the people close to Joseph, the, the polygamy insiders, and, and like I say, there were over 100 before Joseph's death, if any of them had thought Joseph Smith was doing this for libido, uh, they would have dumped him. I mean, most of them, there are some that were very gullible, but the vast majority, your Brigham Youngs, your Zina Huntington, your Eliza Snow, John Taylor, these individuals were strong personalities. They never would have gone along with this. And, and it's a bad argument. It's, it's an it's a inaccurate argument to say that Joseph was doing this for sex and he just, you know, was able to deceive all these gullible people around him. So, so what was it? Well, it was a religious practice. Uh, it was like partaking of the sacrament on Sunday. It was like baptism, um, though polygamy is not an ordinance. It never was. It is the repetition of the sealing ordinance. But you never know from the ordinance whether or not that man may have been sealed to other women. So nothing is lost. The reason I mention that is some people say, well, we've lost the, the ordinance of plural marriage. Well, there is no such ordinance. Okay, <laughs> All of the ordinances that Joseph Smith restored and practiced have been continued in the church up to the present day, including eternal marriage, which, uh, of course, is the, the sealing ceremony that we are still doing in some temples right now. And hopefully that'll be restored sometime soon. Awesome. So, so that's the second concern. If we can understand this was a religious practice for everybody, virtually everybody. I mean, there may have been some men with bad motives, but that's how it was practiced. That's why it was practiced. Um, I think that kind of can, can help people with their, their worries about Nauvoo polygamy. I feel like, yes. And interesting you say Nauvoo polygamy, because that denotes that the, I, I've heard you say that a few times and I'm like, interesting, what exactly do you mean by Nauvoo polygamy? And I feel I feel like you mean mainly when the introduction of polygamy and then Joseph Smith involved polygamy, right? Because there was, I guess you could say there's a Utah polygamy, <laughs> sort of, right? Because of it continued on until 1890 and then 1904. But yeah, can you explain the Nauvoo polygamy a little bit? Well, the reason I, I draw a line is that most members knew Brigham Young was a polygamist. I mean, how could you not know with books that are written like the 26th wife or the 19th wife? Or, you know, <laughs> I mean, every even church members in my generation knew jo Brigham Young was a polygamist, but they didn't know Joseph was a polygamist. Oh, okay. and, and so much of the early literature on Joseph Smith puts him on this pedestal as being perfect, he wasn't. And he often would say, do not expect me to be perfect. If you expect me to be perfect, I'll expect you to be perfect. <laughs> uh, but then he would add, there is no error in my revelations. You know, a prophet is a prophet mm -hmm. only when acting as such. And of course, the concern is in Nauvoo polygamy is that Joseph's motives were not prophetic, but they were Joseph the man and libido. Yeah. And yet if we understand the individual cases, and if we understand there were visions, there were angelic visitations, there were dreams from God, we believe, sustaining people's involvement with this. And, and so God wanted it done. He never explained why. We don't know why God, God commanded it. We can talk about why Section 132 says it could be practiced, but not why it was commanded. So maybe I got off your maybe I got off your question. Did I answer it? No, you no, I, I think you totally did. And I, I love your transparency on this. If I'm kind of unpacking some of what you said is you said you were kind of an outsider 
gathering this information and research. When you said other historians were grateful that you had started this research and this undertaking, they were grateful because an outsider was performing this. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, part of the church's um, tradition uh, for many years was that even its own historians, its BYU professors, would just kind of avoid or tiptoe around this, this whole discussion about plural marriage. It was too controversial. And they might cite Section 19 that talks about giving meat to milk drinkers. If you give you know, a piece of meat to, to a baby who can only drink milk, it's going to choke. And so the, the thought was, we're just never going to talk about meat. We're going to keep those steaks in the freezer and almost forget they even exist. <laughs> and it took the internet to, to bring this meat out. But I would argue so much of it was rancid or was, was not meat. It was a meat substitute or something like this to, to cause uh, an opening and a readdressing of this where, yeah, there are members who are going to get this meat, this reality that Joseph introduced plural marriage, and it's going to hurt their testimonies. And yet it has to be done truthfully. Otherwise, half-truths and misrepresentations are going to take people's testimonies as well. Awesome. I, I love that you said that. And I love that, wow, that a lot of the meat that the internet brought about polygamy was rancid or substitute meat. Wow. And, and it's awesome that that you have been making so much content in the books and the podcast and today, because it's so important, at least for me as well, to get the facts right from a transparencyist. And I, I love that title for you because I think it's so great because you, you've said that before and that makes so much sense to me and, and, and it's so apparent in all the stuff that you do. So I really appreciate everything that you said there. Um, well, thank, thank you, uh, Jake, for referring to me as a transparencyist. And just for the audience, we had some discussions before we went live and I, I, tell, I get accused of being an apologist and it's a pejorative word, and I, it's okay. I understand why they say that, but I wish they'd call me a transparencyist, where, where we just get all the data out there and, and let people interpret it the way they want. Uh, recently, a very uh, a fairly well-known non-Latter-day Saint author uh, acknowledged in, in one of his articles that Don Bradley and I were able to bring together virtually all of the documents dealing with this topic in those three volumes. And that was something that Don and I had asked, aspired to. We said, in 10 years after my books came out, and they came out in 2013, if, uh, if we have 90%, if we look back after 10 years and we, we see we saw it had 90% and only 10% new stuff had come out in this 10-year period, then we'd feel good about it. To be honest with you, there's been like a handful of things and some of it is new research like DNA and stuff that wasn't available. So uh, in all, Don and I, I, I'm guessing really had almost 95, 97, 98%. Most of that's due to Don Bradley's excellent work, but Hmm. but it it does help Hmm. us all appreciate the transparency of it. And I've uploaded all of the data that he and I put together. It's on a website, mormonpolygamydocuments.org. I just thought, look, people think Joseph was doing something that was immoral or here. Well, let's put all of this evidence up on the webs, up on the web for them to look at, and, and we'll just see what they can find. And I would argue that that I don't like polygamy. I never defend polygamy, but I defend Joseph Smith as being a worthy, a prophet, 
and who was just following a, a directive from an angel from God to introduce this and practice it among the people. Oh, I love that you said that. And I love that for someone that knows so much about this topic can keep their faith in the gospel, in the restoration, you know, in Joseph, in Joseph Smith as a prophet and, you know, ultimately in Jesus Christ and his restored gospel. I, that helps me so much to hear that because obviously I don't know everything you know about polygamy <laughs> and and it's been so awesome that you can, as a transparencyist, just give all the data out there. And so visit, it was mormonpolygamy.org? Uh, mormonpolygamydocuments.org. It's a database. Then, okay. Yeah, it's it's a database, though there are some things that are on the uh, homepage that talk about some more current issues. But if you're interested in those uh, in the actual documents, there's 15 gigabytes of data that I've uploaded there. Wow. I'm not sure that my server is all that happy Ooh. that I've uploaded all that stuff. But uh, at one point I had to pay a little extra to get some extra space, <laughs> but it's all there. And if somebody wants to disagree with my interpretation, fine, but, but go find the evidence. Let's not work from assumption or, you know, uh, some kind of a, uh, a quick uh, judgment of Joseph Smith. Now, um, Jake, let me add one last thing. And this comes from our previous conversation that I think there's a fear that Latter-day Saints have about polygamy that we can address besides the issue of maybe it was a cover-up or Joseph was libido-driven. I, I think understanding those two are very helpful. There's a third thing, though, that, that the Latter-day Saints uh, are, are concerned about. And I just want to talk about it. It's about future polygamy. And there mm. was... a uh, when I, when I was growing up, there was kind of an assumption that every man in the, in, that's exalted would be a polygamist. And, and, and that idea just pervaded uh, a lot of the opinions of Latter-day Saints. It isn't true. I want to I wanna say there's, that's never been st stated uh, that plural marriage is needed for exaltation. If you look at just the numbers, there's not enough women to go around anyway to give every man even two wives. So um, <laughs> that's a very practical observation, but, but it hasn't been declared. And, and the reason I think that's important is that um, in, in 1915, President Joseph F. Smith, he was church president, key holder, um, he was approached, and I pulled the quote out. Let me just read it. Oh, uh, but here's what he said. If a man and a woman should be joined together who are incompatible to each other, it would be mercy to them to be separated that they might have a chance to find other spirits that will be congenial to them. We may bind on earth as it will be bound in heaven and loose on earth and it will be loosed in heaven. Now, we don't hear that quoted in general conference because it supports divorce. I'm divorced. So um, I'm, you know, I'm glad there's a, an ability to loosen and seal these, these ceilings, these marriages, these eternal marriages. But the reason I, I share that here is that I, it's a true principle that, an eternal ceiling can be loosened. And I am, and this is quoting from the book of Hales, but I believe this to be true, <laughs> that no one is going to, no worthy person in the next life before the judgment is going to find himself or herself sealed to a spouse or in a marital dynamic that they have not chosen and they do not believe will bring them eternal joy and happiness. And all of those, there, I think there's going to be all kinds of adjustments. 
And no one is going to find themselves forever uh, in, in a relationship or dynamic that they will be unhappy with. God has promised those who are exalted that they will have endless happiness, everlasting happiness and joy. We can believe that. And we can believe that our agency will be part of how we achieve that as God is able to loosen and reseal in before the final judgment. And as we all move forward, those, I, sh- I hope I'm part of that group, but as those who are worthy are able to move forward in their eternal progress. That's, that's so comforting to know. And I feel when you say that, I feel like that's true. That feels so right to me. And I, I feel like that's, I, I always think to myself when uh, everything's, you know, done and we're kind of in the spirit world or we're getting ready to enter the kingdoms of heaven. I, you know, I'm not sure how that's all going to look right, but I, I always comfort myself by saying, you know what, God and Jesus, you know, one, they love us so much. And then two, they know everything and they'll always make everything right for eternity. And I was like, okay, cool. They'll fix everything. <laughs> I mean, I, I wonder if that's a little throwing too much onto them, but it feels so right that you say that, like there's things that are going to be loosed in heaven as well, like, or loosed on earth or bind it, bound on heaven and bound in earth. It's, it's really cool that you said that. It kind of goes back to what I said earlier about if we are here choosing God and doing it to the best of our ability. Now, now let me add that as we respond to the Holy spirit, um, section 84 tells us, that God will take that person and lead them to the ordinances. And that's why the church is is so important. The church not only teaches truths, but we've learned that sometimes the teachings of mortals may err for a while. So so we, we, uh, I mean, Joseph said, I'm not perfect, but there's no error in my revelations. And very few things we get today are in that category. Mostly what we've had are just teachings from men and women trying to do the best they can. But uh, the church's role is to teach truth, but it's also to perform valid ordinances. And as we expose ourselves to baptism and endure, you know, these kinds of ordinances, then we make a covenant with God and allow God to reach down into our lives and do things for us that we can't do if we reject those covenants or if we reject the Holy Spirit that brings us to those covenants. So, so there's, there's a whole dynamic working, I believe, spiritually with each one of us. And as we respond to the true spirit, we will be given the light that we, we can, uh, that we will be able to appreciate and will be led to the ordinances, which will again, give us more opportunities for light. I feel like that's a great reason to stay <laughs> in the church. Good, good. I, I feel you like, good. I believe you will. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel very optimistic with my journey forward, although it's still a little uncertain. But what you just said is exactly right. And it's such a good reason for me to stay because I find so much about the restored gospel and and the ordinances in the church just so beautiful. And, and it just speaks to me so well. And it's so it rings so true. And I've also talked about, you know, how another big reason to, you know, that that keeps me kind of in this church and following this gospel and, and believing in the restored gospel is the book of Mormon because <laughs> it's such a, a strong evidence to me. And it's so it's, it's almost undeniable proof of the restoration gospel to me, you know uh, I know it's different for other people. So kind of to, yeah, start wrapping up there is why maybe if you could explain the reasons you choose to stay 
in the church. I know you talked about those ordinances that the church offers and the future that we're promised if we stayed faithful, but maybe you could talk a little bit about why why you choose to stay. You know, it's a great question because when I started my polygamy research and I, I actually wrote a, a couple of books on fundamentalist polygamists because a family member for a short time was involved with them. She was a polygamous wife. And so I investigated fundamentalist polygamy And then uh, it became obvious that Joseph Smith's plurality wasn't very well known, and I didn't understand it. There were questions I had, so I jumped into that around 2007. Um, And as I started researching it, there were people who were going, you know, Brian, why are you doing this? Why are you studying polygamy? And at the time, I was divorced, and I would tell them, you know, I can't even monog, so don't worry about me polygging, you know. Um, (laughs) But... uh, but their concerns were often very genuine. So I had family members write me a letter saying, leave this alone. Just don't even go there. And they were concerned that I would find some things that uh, would, would uh, negatively affect my testimony. And it's interesting because if you looked at every book published up to my books in 2013, uh, so many of these that dealt with polygamy in depth were written by individuals who were ba- had been baptized members of the church who were no longer uh, apparently believing they portrayed because these books portrayed Joseph as a fraud. And so there was a reasons to be, be concerned, but the one thing, and I don't want to, people who want to hear about polygamy may not like me telling them why, but the reason that I wasn't overly concerned had to do with the Book of Mormon. And you, you just mentioned this. Um, in the back of my mind, I had an unproven theory that there's no way Joseph Smith could have dictated 269,320 words of the Book of Mormon um, as a 23-year-old farmer. And I just believed that, uh, didn't know what to, you know, I just thought he started as a prophet in 1829. I don't think he lost that prophetic mantle by 1840, 1844. And so, if he introduced polygamy, it must have been through his prophetic calling. That was the way I approached it. The Book of Mormon was was clearly there through supernatural uh, intervention that Joseph, as a prophet, if you will, and so I believed it carried him forward. Now, as soon as I got done with my books, and and this has been about five years ago, I I'm now testing that theory. I've had a number of articles. Uh, published. I'm working on a couple of book manuscripts. But again, I, I am convinced even more uh, what Joseph did is he dictated nearly 7,000 very long sentences. They're almost 40 words each on average, and, and most fiction books are 10 to 15 words per sentence. These are 40 word sentences, almost 7,000 of them dictated in a row that were so refined they didn't need to resequence a single one before publication. And to me, that's, that's, a, that's a, a level of human performance that has never been equaled. And, and is a, the, book of, the Doctrine and Covenants says that the coming forth of the Book of Mormon is proving to the world that the scriptures are true and that God does call men into his service in our day. God exists. He calls prophets. And proof of that, according to DNC 20, verse 11, is the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. I have found that to be absolutely true. It's a physical sign. And sometimes when I share it with people, they're almost offended. It's like, 
I don't need a physical sign because I have a spiritual sign. And, and I don't mean to mock, but, but I'm thinking, look, if the, the Lord's going to give us a physical sign, let's, <laughs> let's acknowledge that. Um, and it was honestly uh, what kind of carried me through the early research. And there were times when I would discover documents and I would go, wow, that doesn't seem to fit. But every time that happened, there was, there was a twist to it. There was something that wasn't available at that moment that became available to give uh, this transparency and opportunity to have faith, to see that this wasn't Joseph Smith doing something that was illicit. And, and I never found anything that was overly concerning in the law, in the wider picture, but you would discover little statements and things that along the way that would make you go, well, okay, let's keep looking and see how this contextualizes. And, and again, I, I don't like polygamy, as I said, um, but uh, was Joseph a prophet? I, I do believe that. Thank you for being so open about that. Thank you. That's that's so cool. I, I remember when I first told you that uh, the Book of Mormon is kind of what's keeping me, and you're like, yeah, that's what it was made for. <laughs> and I love that <laughs> all those awesome facts that you just gave, and I'm really excited. So that's... Uh, so. You're, you've been working on manuscripts and hopefully we'll get something published someday, right? Is that is that kind of your project moving forward? Well, I've already got a couple of rejections on earlier versions, so I'm updating them and I hope I hope we'll see. Uh, uh, it's, it's pretty compelling when you, if you ask a naturalist, an anti-Mormon, how did Joseph do it? They don't have an answer and you can go to the, the websites like Mormon Think or go to the, the big antagonists and ask them, how do you do it? Listen to their answers. They don't have a plausible answer to date. And I know they'll, they'll keep working, but to, to do what Joseph did is, is not something any human has done before. Yeah. And it's, and never will. Like it's, it's so, that's, that resonates so much with me is, is there's just no way. <laughs> there's no way. And we're making a video right now about the witnesses of the Book of Mormon. So the three and the eight. And you know how, you know, all those, and there's crazy awesome stories about them and never denying their testimony. And, and I feel like the best excuse that I've heard lately and is, well, Joseph hypnotized them. <laughs> and that sounds more out there than actually seeing the plates in an angel. It, it seems crazier to me. <laughs> uh, well, hypnosis anyway. doesn't work that way. And I, I've touched on that in one of my manuscripts. So yeah, so we'll look forward to that. And thank you so much, Brian, for coming on. Um, is there anything else that you would like to talk about? I can wrap up right now. Uh, no, no. In fact, I appreciate okay we were able to touch on, on, on things that I haven't said a dozen times before or written about <laughs> new, new ideas about how to deal with plural marriage. So it doesn't bother Latter-day Saints and those maybe just, just to, to sum up though, and you can cut this if you want to, but sure. um, it wasn't a cover up. Uh, this was just a traditional view that was carried forward from the 1940s. And I've written books on that period. So it's something I've researched. And then the second thing, thing is, if you go and read the accounts, and we have them on the website, josephsmithpolygamy.org, accounts from the actual polygamists, this was not libido-driven. Uh, let me add, there's a paradox that, that people today claim insights into Joseph Smith that those who knew, them, who knew him best could not see. In other words, people will say, oh, I see, Joseph just wanted libido. I mean, this was just about sex. And, and yet, if the people who knew him the very best could, could, did not see that or they wouldn't have stayed with him, it was a religious practice 
I'm glad it's gone. I don't think it'll be back. I don't think I'll be a polygamist in, in eternity. And that brings us to the third thing is this issue about what is the future for us? Does it involve polygamy? I would I don't, don't want to do it. I don't think I'll ever have to. Um, and we don't know much about eternal marriage. And we know even less about eternal plural marriage. So there's no reason to worry about these things. God will honor our agency if we are worthy, allowing us all to be sealed or unsealed. And then uh, and ultimately in, in marriages and dynamics that are totally acceptable to us. Hmm. Thank you, Brian. I'm really glad you've come on today and wish you the best in all your future endeavors. And thank you for watching this episode of the Saints Unscripted podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss these videos and comment uh, your thoughts on today's video and any future topics that you want us to cover or, que uh, or questions that you have. And we'll see you again next time. This is a Saints Unscripted original podcast and is hosted and executive produced by me, Jacob Watson, and Saints Unscripted. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll catch you next time.